0: Welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft book club In um, this episode I'll be starting a series looking at some of uh, Lovecraft's non-fiction writing some of his poetry Some of his just non short story writing from the earliest period of his career up up to and including 1920 so um, where to start with this well I'd wanted to to go through Lovecraft's uh, selected letters, the ones put together after he died by Arkham House, five volumes. You know, of course, Lovecraft wrote many more letters than that, and many more have been published since. Uh, I urge you to look at the Robert E. Howard uh, Lovecraft letters in two volumes, if you get the chance. But anyways, the selected letters are the core uh, material, you know, edited filtered for really the most important stuff, or if you want to understand Lovecraft and its philosophy and his works. Um, now, Volumes 2, 3, and 4 of this are available uh, basically on, online, you can get them um, through various means. Um, volume 1 and 5, not so much, and I had trouble finding them. I did locate them one summer, a few years ago, uh, through some interlibr- interlibrary loan system when I was in Wisconsin. And I got it through my public library, and I took notes on Volumes 1 and 5. So that is what we're going to have to work off of for uh, this episode, which will look at the first volume of Lovecraft's Selected Letters. In the future, I'll spend several episodes on each edition, because I'll have them in front of me, and I'll be able to dissect them a little bit more. Um, I was a little bit, when I took the notes, I was focusing just on what I was interested in at the time, which was issues of race, issues of Atlantic history, and of course, those are themes that this podcast is exploring anyways, so I think that will be, be fine. So what I have here is about 25, notes on about 25 of the letters, altogether there was I think 150 or 130, something like that, in that first volume. They're all numbered uh, c- c- consecutively through the five volumes, and I think altogether you, you end up with something like 500 letters if you want to do that, go on that quest. I, I kinda recommend it if you really want to understand Lovecraft's works, but I can understand why a lot of people kind of shy away from them. Some people though seem to really prefer the letters to to the stories or get more out of them and and me kind of intellectually I guess I'm with that. I I find uh reading his letters confines my analysis a little bit, forces me to face some Brutal truths, but also allows me to appreciate the complexity of Lovecraft's thinking on, on various race issues, and appreciate how he changes over time, um, over over many years. So um, yeah, let's let's get started here. Um, the first letter I want to look at is the third, which was H. P. Lovecraft to Maurice Mo, first of January, nineteen fifteen. So Maurice Mo, Mo was part of the Galamo. Uh, kind of society, if you want to call it that. I think this may have been Lovecraft's attempt to be part of a literary society the way that Samuel Johnson was. I can look at my uh, review of that story, the reminiscence of, of Dr. Samuel Johnson. So the people in this group were Alfred Galpin, Lovecraft, uh, and Maurice Mo. And that's that kind of, you know, G-A-L, Galmo, Lovecraft, Mo. That was how Galamo um, emerges uh, so um, he was Maurice Winter died 1940 was an uh, amateur journalist English teacher uh, he was University of Wisconsin um, English teacher in Appleton High School so he's kind of like from where I'm from uh, central Wisconsin area Appleton's in the kind of the Fox Valley but it's, cl- it's within a couple hours uh, They've known each other since 1914, and he's the one who introduced Alfred Galpin to Lovecraft. So they often talked about religion. Um, that's that's just from the Wikipedia entry. There's not an independent Wikipedia entry for Maurice Moe, but there's the Galamo um, one. Anyways, in this letter, uh, 1915, Lovecraft attempted a family history and an autobiography. Uh, he talks about his family history, uh, particularly on the Philip side, which is often seen as the problematic side of, of his, or the one that goes back more. I guess his, his. I guess maybe his father was the more problematic side, but uh, the Philip side went back farther. Um, so it's the more interesting one. That's what I should have said. The more interesting one for studying his, his vision of himself as part of this kind of Anglo-Saxon line in New England. Um, He calls his line, quote, typical New England Yankees. Um, Now, this letter, he establishes uh, this very doting admiration for English cultural tradition, something we've talked about a few times in this podcast already. He said, quote, I cannot even now excuse the revolution of America from England. And though my influence of hereditary, I am at heart an Englishman despite my English birth. My knowledge of the world is no more than could be expected from one reared in seclusion. So, we have a bit of a paradox here, I think. Lovecraft believed himself to be transatlantic in his heart, but also calls himself profoundly isolated and parochial. And I think these are the two ways we kind of look at Lovecraft. Some people see him as kind of this uh, nerdy isolate, and others acknowledge rightfully that he wasn't that at all. He had this vast network of friends. He traveled uh, quite a lot. He lived in New York City for a while. And even more importantly for me, his intellectual worldview was international. And... Um, yeah, I think this paradox helps us interpret his, his work. I think it's really key to that. Um, the next letter I want to look at uh, is number four in the listing, H.P. Lovecraft to Maurice Moe, January 16. So this is just two weeks later. Um, it's a very short letter, or at least the edited version was very short. <clears throat> and he talks again about English traditions here. Um, talking specifically about Anglicanism, and as I mentioned before, Maurice Mo was religious, so a lot of the conversations dwelt with religion, and it's one aspect of the English tradition that Lovecraft turns his back on most. You know, the one that tradition that he turns his back on is Anglicanism, which he found exhausting in his quote-unquote Puritanical beliefs. That's a bit of a another paradox there, being that Anglicanism and Puritanism were were kind of separate traditions in in American history. Uh, but he says he much prefers the Greek and Roman pantheistic tradition, coupled with a modern rationalism, which I kinda like. I mean I kind of get that about Lovecraft. I, I dig I dig the 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 pantheist, I dig the the polytheist actually. Uh he calls Greek and Romans pantheist here. Um when I don't know if polytheistic is a better way or pan henotheism might be the proper way to talk about it, kind of like all these gods in one, the way the Hindus did. I guess that's one way to look at it, but that's what he calls it. Um, I have to look back at the letter to, to get more detail on that. But he wants to couple it with rationalism. Obviously, Lovecraft was a was a rationalist in many ways. All right. Next letter uh, six. Letter six. No, sorry. Letter five. I skipped one. Um, letter five. Uh, HPL to Reinhard Kleiner. Uh, March 28th, 1915. So who's Reinhard Kleiner? Well, he was one of Lovecraft's amateur journalism and friends, another conservative, um, someone he corresponded to and while well, he was writing for the conservative and other um, journals like that. <clears throat> so in this letter, Lovecraft often repeated that he was artistically and sentimentally of the 18th century, another theme we've already tar- talked about here. Um, sometimes this emerges in rather immature ways, such as his use of elongated S's in letters, and and the, this is talked about in the Selected Letters edited version that he would use those you know the like the in the Constitution right you got those those s's that look like f's those elongated s's that was he would do that he often would do write self portraits sketched in an eighteenth century style um, I, there's I think it's actually in the second volume of the Selected Letters they reprinted one of these so um, it's true it's certainly true that he has this affinity for the eighteenth century especially English or British eighteenth century. Um, and it was uh, a period of internationalism. It was a period of racial hybridity. If you look at the slave trade and, and the development of, of the Americas or Spanish America or you know, pretty much anywhere in the Atlantic world, you get these kind of racially hybrid populations and cultural mixing. Um, all the stuff he seems to hate so much were of the 18th century. So he's, he picks an odd century to, to idealize given his, his racial and, and kind of social politics. Uh, Age of Empire, too, and commerce. Um, and, you know, this letter, I, don't, I didn't write down any quotes from this letter, but this one really focuses on his artistic affection for the 18th century, and he, he really uh, hits that home. Um, the next letter is number six, H.P.L. Uh, to Reinhard Kleiner again. This was a couple weeks later again. Um, that's a fairly normal turnabout for his letters, actually. Um, August 1915. And now we're in the midst of World War II and we get a discussion of, or sorry, World War I, and we get a discussion of World War I here. During the First World War, (coughs) Lovecraft embraced more strongly than ever his British tradition, and he made a deep-throated defense of American interventionism on behalf of Britain. In this letter to Kleiner he wrote, quote, I shall not stoop to explain that I am an invalid who would certainly be fighting under the Union Jack if able, but shall have plenty to say about the decadent cowardice responsible for the propagation of peace ideas. Peace is the ideal of a dying nation. End quote. So that is a very, very clear statement that he has contempt for the isolationists, those who don't want to back up England for these kind of historical and cultural reasons that he sees a kind of a pan-Atlantic, a white-Atlantic, almost an Anglo-Saxon-Atlantic world that needs to have solidarity, and he has this almost quasi-fascist uh, disgust with, with any ideals about peace. Um, now, in a few letters later in the selection, I skipped a few, but uh, he wrote another letter to Kleiner in August 20, on August 25th, 1915, so again, about a two-week turnaround in these letters. This was the next one to him. And this shows Lovecraft's more upfront and ugly attacks on interracial breeding, his belief in the supremacy of the Teutonic race. He wrote, As to races, I deem it most proper to recognize the division into which nature has grouped mankind. Science shows us the infinite superiority of the Teutonic Aryan over all others, and it therefore becomes us to see that his ascendancy shall remain undisputed. Any racial mixture can but lower the result. So uh, we're gonna look at a letter or a, uh, an article later on called um, Crime of the Century, I think it is. And I've already sort of talked about that in the case of, in the story, The Doom That Came to Starnath, maybe. Maybe Polaris. But well, I already talked about it, but I'm gonna take a closer look later. But it's very similar in ideas with this letter. Um, maybe written around the same time, actually. So he, he, Lovecraft ties this belief in the superiority of the Teutonic Aryan over all others to the struggle, of the First World War, which he saw to some degree as a wasteful civil war among the race. He actually calls it in the letter an elaborately state racial suicide. Um, basically, to have the Anglo sax the Teutonic race, which he sees the Anglo-Saxons as part of engaged in a civil war as as distracting from the the real fight, he thinks, with the West. I mean, really kind of quasi fascist ideas here. Proto fascist. I'm gonna. I, I think so. I, I think that's certainly. Maybe I want to go so far as to salt, call him a fascist, but he certainly embraced a lot of ideas that would later be associated with the fascists. Um, all right. Um, more of this in letter ten, which is again to Reinhard Kleiner. Um, this is, I think, no, this is a bl- bit later, December sixth, nineteen fifteen, and he writes, quote. And the more I study the question, the more firmly I'm convinced that the one supreme race is the Teuton. Observe the condition of the British Isles. The English are wholly Teutonic and therefore dominant. The Welsh, who have no Teutonic blood, are of little account. End quote. Uh, I'll come back to this when I look at the, the Howard letters, because he talks a lot about the ethnic makeup of, of England with, with Howard. All right, the next letter is to a group group. Um, uh, this is HPL to Klekomo. This is not the Gallomo. This is uh, Lovecraft Kleiner. So Kleiner Kolmo are Klekomo in his in his um, letters. So it's a group letter to these three other people. Uh, this was August eighth, nineteen sixteen. It's the sixteenth letter in the first uh, selected letters. So Lovecraft's racial seriousness seems undermined here by his broader philosophical perspective on the meaninglessness of humanity in the cosmos. And I think this is another sort of contradiction in his writing in that he definitely kind of sees us all as equally insignificant in the universe. But then why does he put so much stock into these kind of racial hierarchies and things? Um, I mean, maybe there's there's a way to square that circle. Um, I'm sure there is, but for me, it's a bit of a, of a weird his racial obsession is really weird if if we really take his core ideas is kind of meaningless of humanity in the cosmos um, and he writes as much in 19, this 1916 letter to these amateur journalism colleagues he actually says quote how arrogant to use creatures of the moment whose very or how arrogant to use creatures of the moment whose very species is but an experiment in the deus natura to arrogate to ourselves an immortal future in considerable status Our philosophy is all childish subjective. We imagine that the welfare of our race is a paramount consideration when, as a matter of fact, the very existence of the race may be an obstacle to the predestined course of the aggregated universe of infinity. Now, obviously here he means race, not in the terms of Anglo-Saxon or Teutonic race or whatever. He means it as the human race. But he still says here um, to, to even talk about hierarchy is a bit immature right um, you know our, to talk about status he sees as a bit immature in the but this is a good letter for getting at his, his philosophical view now notice when he's writing more publicly to a group of people he doesn't lay on so thick the, the racial stuff which he does when he writes to Kleiner who from, from what I can tell was another um, racial bigot and I'm not sure um, i just guessing by the way Lovecraft writes to him. Lovecraft was sometimes careful about the language he used with different people that he wrote letters to. Um, letter 22 in the series. Uh, HPL to Reinhard Kleiner again. Uh, this is May 23rd, 1917. Uh, Kleiner comes up a lot simply because he's, he's a guy that Lovecraft talks about race with. Um, it, it comes up a lot in my notes anyways. Uh, this, so this is 1917, so we're well into World War Um, One, the U.S. had already joined by this point. Um, So Lovecraft here plays with the idea of fighting in the First World War uh, and connects his vocal claims about the defense of Great Britain to his desire for action. Obviously, Lovecraft didn't fight in the war, but he he seemed to have a desire to do that. Um, uh, In this 1917 letter to Kleiner, Lovecraft documents his attempt to join the National Guard with hopes of being sent to the front. Uh, He cleared medical review, but his mom intervened. That's the story we get. From him is that his mom intervened and prevented him from serving but he did he was cleared to go so um, kind of he did try to put his money where his mouth is in terms of this idea of fighting for the Teutonic race or something but uh, at least for ang or his anglo-saxon compatriots uh, the very next letter is to Maurice Moe again uh, this was May 30th 1917 and he kind of tells the same story here about trying to join the war, um, and so he embraced a certain romanticism about his emerging belief in this utter insignificance of humanity in the cosmos, thinking that the end of his life in France would quote justify his hitherto useless existence, end quote. Um, so notice he kind of has a different attitude when he writes to Mo than when he writes to Kleiner. Um, but he comments at the end of the letter to Mo that it makes little sense to worry about the deaths of thousands on the battlefield when. Quote, in the intermento- intermittable recesses of a- ethereal space, all mankind is nothing but a superfluous atom. Um, so instead of talking like race, like he does to Kleiner, he's talking more about his broader philosophy and the meaninglessness of existence. All right. Um, letter 29 is HBL to Kleiner again, Reiner Kleiner, Kleiner. Uh, December 23rd, uh, 1917. Um So he has quite a bit of pessimism in this letter. This is not long after the collapse of Russia in 1917. And he had again started seeing the First World War as a type of race war, Um, albeit now a very unfortunate racial civil war between, you know, at least when the Germans were fighting the Russians, there was kind of this idea of a race war. Um, Now it's just a civil war between the Teutonic race. He says the differences between the Anglo-Americans and the Germans... Uh, he didn't talk about the French at all, um, was that the Germans were actually pure descendants of the Teutonic race. He wrote that, quote, nothing can withstand the might of the Teuton. Teutonic blood conquered the Western wilderness and gave America an instant place among the great nations of the globe. End quote. Um, now, the expected failure of the Americans and British at this time, uh, Lovecraft believed, was blamed on the, quote, grotesque fallacy that America was stronger as a, quote, unquote, melting pot. Uh, And the end result, he thought, of a civil war among the Teutonic race would be the decline of overall global civilization. So again, with the letters to Kleiner, we get a lot of the racial stuff. Um, Okay, 32. This is HPL to Reiner Kleiner again, uh, 23rd of February, 1918. Um, And I'll just quote here. I just wrote down a quote. Um, Your philosophy is very seldom, or is it, quote, your philosophy is a very sensible sort to have And in the end, I suppose it's not so remote from mine. What does it all amount to anyways? In a few million years, there'll be no human race at all. Man at best is but an incident, and a very trifling incident in the limitless history of nature. I'm inclined to think all entity evolves in cycles, that sooner or later everything occurs practically all over again. So a little bit of a Nietzschean eternal return there as well. So pretty self-explanatory. We got the... Yeah, the meaninglessness of existence, once again. Kind of some po- apocalyptic thinking there. Um, also in the context of the end of the war. Uh, letter 35. Uh, this is to Maurice Moe. May 15, 1918. It's a relatively long letter, seven pages in the, in the book. So in this letter, Lovecraft expressed a tension that would shape how he would look at Atlantic history throughout much of his life. The mob, he believed, is simultaneously dangerous and full of creative potentialities. This is like my core thesis. This is what I think is the most important thing I want people to get out of this podcast and my own take on Lovecraft is that, yes, the international rabble is is dangerous and a threat to civilization, but it's also very, very creative, autonomous, and that's where its power lies, really. Quote, Quote the letter, I recognize the power of the prime primal, which among the illiterate, semi-literate, and a few of the literate is a force capable of much good if skillfully wielded. Conversely, I recognize the dangerous potentialities of an ignorantly atheistical mob, a mob whose atheism comes not from thought, but from copying others. All rationalism tends to minimize the value and importance of life and to decrease the sum total of human happiness. End quote. Um, so this is that weird way that Lovecraft defends religious institutions, even when he rejects Anglicanism, he rejects Roman Catholicism, and he rejects religion in his own life. He thinks that he's like somehow intellectually superior, so his atheism is okay, but other people's atheism is it's just a kind of Bolshevism or something. Um, so he thinks religious institutions can sort of alleviate the stress and depression caused by an indifferent universe. Kind of an odd take on the... Uh, the opiate of the masses kind of argument of, of Marx. Of course, Marx didn't really think religion was like just a brainwashing tool. That's how a lot of people read it. In fact, that quote by Marx more broadly says, religion is how the working class live out their, their dreams of what the world could be on this planet um, if not for the horrible social structures they, they exist in. Um, but a lot of people kind of took from this the Oh, religion just brainwashes people um, That's not his point But Lovecraft here does seem to think Religion could alleviate the stress and depression Because most people in his view can't handle the thesis That we're all kind of doomed to insignificance um, So next letter uh, H.P.L. to Reinhard Kleiner August 25th, 1918 um, he dated this 1718, by the way, but I don't know if that was him having fun or just an error. So as the war drove to a close with Allied victory, Lovecraft remained a believer in the benefits of a North, American, North Atlantic alliance or even a reunion with, between Britain and the United States. So to Kleiner, he wrote that he supported the British in 1914 for, quote, king and empire, adding that he believed that the North Atlantic was an Anglo-Saxon unit. Quote, I am not an anglo Maniac of the point of anti-Americanism. I'm merely a colonial Tory of the Angian regime, loving all, loving my native town of Providence, my native colony of Rhode Island, and the ancestral and all-inclusive circle of civilization Britannias. So that's what he says here. So he, he kind of checks his, saying I'm not a total Anglophiliac. I just, I just, I just love everything about the British Empire in America. <laughs> um, yeah. He doesn't mention slavery. Um, but he also talks about his belief in an eventual reunion between, between Britain and the United States. And I, I wonder what his opinion on, would, on NATO or the Cold War time would have been, because you do sort of get that in the post-World War II period. All right, next letter. Uh, this one is to Galomo, Galpin, Lovecraft, and Mo. So he's writing this to Galpin and Moe, I guess. This is September 30th, 1919. Um, And here he talks about the Yellow Peril. He talks about Asians. So he doesn't really grant black people much historical agency and potential in his writings very much. But he seemed to worry about Asians as a real threat to the survival of the white race. And and then he builds off this discourse of the Yellow Peril, which was certainly popular at the time and, and even from before the war. He wrote, quote, Orientals must be kept in their native east till the fall of the white race. Sooner or later, a great Japanese war will take place, during which, I think the virtual destruction of Japan will have to be affected in the interest of European safety. The more numerous Chinese are a menace of still more distant future. They will probably be extensions, exterminators of Caucasian civilization for their numbers are amazing. So wow, uh, I I don't know how you see kind of the Pacific history, but there's something kind of in a perverse racist way predictive about this. He did predict a Japanese war that would lead to the destruction of Japan. Then he predicted the rise of China much later. So, wow. uh, This is letter 61 in the series, the next one. This is to Reinhard Kleiner again, January 23rd, 1920. Um, Now, he writes here, eroticism belongs to the lower orders or instincts and is an animal rather than noble nobly human quality for evolved man, the apex of organic progress on Earth. What branch or reflection is more fitting than that which occupies only its higher or exclusive human faculties, the primal savage or ape merely looks about his native forest to find a mate. The exalted Aryan should live his eyes to lift his eyes to to the worlds of space and consider his relation to infinity. So that's a really kind of cool quote there. Um, where he kind of has this kind of evolutionary view, and he's got his kind of racial philosophy, but he also has this idea of kind of infinity and the cosmos all kind of grouped together into one really powerful statement. Um, he also seems to talk about here that his belief that only the most enlightened aspects of humanity could understand the utter indifference of cosmos to him. So something he played with in earlier letters too, that basically for everyone else, you know, religion will just be kind of that something to keep them sane in the, in the face of this indifference. But for us smart people, we can kind of appreciate it and, and, and live our lives in, in respect of that. He, he writes, what is the secret of time, space, and things that lie beyond time and space? What sinister forces hurl through the black and curious ether these titanic globes of living flame and the insect-peopled worlds that hover about them? Here, here at last, is something worthy of the interest of enlightened mankind. End quote. Insect-peopled worlds that hover about them. I mean, they're, I don't know, Yugoth, the, the, the Migo, or whatever. I don't know. They're kind of insectoid, right? Lovecraft fans can can, can maybe trace back his thinking about the Migo to this letter. I don't know. Uh, okay, the 80th in the series. Now, now, I'm actually past 1920 now, but I'm just going to finish because why not? Um, I will finish up with the first volume. Um, yeah, it's all in the same period, but rather than doing a whole other episode just on the 21 to 24 letters, I think, yeah, this volume goes through in January 1924 so. So um, the core of what I wanted to talk about here is ideas before 1920 are done, but I'm just going to finish up here just because there's only a few more letters I think I really want to talk about. So anyways, Frank Belknap not Long, who's he? He's a new guy. Well, he's someone who's worthy of his own Wikipedia entry. He lived a fairly long life, born in 1901, so he's about 10 years younger than Lovecraft. He lived until 1984, and he was a horror writer. Um, And he's well known for his association with Lovecraft, his kind of role in helping to establish this kind of Cthulhu mythos stuff after Lovecraft's death. So... He's kind of associated in that Lovecraftian circle, but he has his own very, very prolific career as a writer. Um, you know, there's even some things that are associated in pop culture with Lovecraft, like, you know, the Hound of Tyndallus things. That's, those are inventions of, of Long, and Lovecraft even borrowed some of Long's monsters and gods and stuff in some of his writings. So, um, yeah, he writes a lot of letters to Long. So, obviously, Lovecraft had a deep amateur interest in philosophy and a more serious interest in contemporary science. And I've been debating whether to <coughs> talk with you about his amateur astronomy. It's just their, I mean, it's kind of a curiosity. I, I don't know how much they're going to add to my podcast, uh, except as just being complete, that he wrote amateur astronomy. But he had a really serious interest in, in science. And both, of the, both philosophy and science shaped his overall worldview. But he tended to pick writers and scientists who shared his belief in the indifference of the universe to human life. And we see a little of this in in this letter. So I got a long quote here that I wrote down from this letter. Quote, clear-cut atheism and materialism seem to me the only tenable hypothesis today. You speak of immortality as, as if one's personality were something apart from its material structure. Yet when we analyze personality, we can trace every quality of the atoms and electrons of the body. Certainly these electrons were thus never assembled till the body in question took form, and equally certain that they will never thus be assembled again. When a man dies, his body turns to liquids and gases whose molecules soon enter into the infinitude of new combinations. There is nothing left. Heckel had dealt so clearly with the subject in the real universe that it's really superfluous for me to repeat the argument here. As to free will, like the Epicureans, whose school I followed, I used to believe in it. Now, however, I'm forced to admit that there is no room for it. End quote. Now, he does make a a call to heckle in one of his stories. He mentions this in Herbert West Reanimator, because he says somewhere that Herbert West holds with heckle. Basically, this philosophy of of, of the soul, that there is no soul. It's this this radical materialism. Um, All right. Letter 90. I guess I got a little bit lazy when I was taking notes here, or maybe there's a lot of letters that just, you know, didn't really add that much to what I've already found. Um, but this is to Gal- Galomo again, so this is lo- uh, This is uh, uh, Galopin and Mo. not Long, don't get confused, Long, Gal- Galomo is, is Galopin, Lovecraft, Moe. Um, this is October 6th, 1921. So here, he, Lovecraft again reinforced his dream of fighting for the survival of Anglo American civilization, regretting his failure to begin a martial career. Um, so he still regrets it three years after the war ends, not fighting. Quote At heart, I believe I despise the ascetic and prefer the warrior. I'm essentially a Teuton and barbarian, a Santokin to the giant. Uh, chalk white conquerors of the cursed effeminate Celts. I am a son of Odin and a brother to Hengist and Horsa. Gur, Give me a drink of hot blood with a Celtic's foe skull as a beaker. Rule Britannia!s God save the king. Um, yeah, a lot of jumbled stuff there. He's got like paganism. He's got British Empire. God save the king. Celtics. Uh, bizarre. I mean, it's bizarre for a grown man to talk this way, to be honest, I think. It's one thing for like a teenager to maybe say this kind of, to have these kind of jumbled thoughts, but he has them. And I think that's just like one of the wildest, weirdest thing about Lovecraft. Here he is a grown man in his thirties talking about being like Conan or something. This is before Conan was written. But, uh, anyways, in the same letter, he adopted a belief that we could see now the foundation of fascist thinking, um, and um, he does kind of criticize, he thinks that fascism, which the ideas of fascism had really started right after World War I, right? The clear kind of a fascist tradition. And he actually rejects this, too, saying it wouldn't be a stable foundation for civilization and progress. Quote, vitalism, which, of course, is central to fascism, this vitalist philosophy, which he just expressed in his desire to be a barbarian conqueror. It's weird too, because when he writes with, with, with Howard, he's the complete opposite point of view about this. Howard's trying to defend the barbarian, and Lovecraft isn't. Uh, anyways, he cha- his ideas change, anyways. I think this letter is more like a r- weird rant than anything else. He writes this, but, but about vitalism. Vitalism is a pleasing fad, but it cannot overcome the evidence of determinism or establish an absurd doctrine as one dimension progress in an eternal universe. Um, Um, okay, letter 93. HPL to Anne Tillery Renshaw. So we got another name here we need to look up. Anyways, couldn't find much. Just another one of Lovecraft's friends, uh, a writer in her own regard. They published uh, the letters of Lovecraft to Elizabeth Toldridge and in, in Renshaw in, in, a, in a volume. So that'd be interesting to check out someday. Maybe I'll get to it. Um, So Lovecraft in this letter is openly hostile to the popular idea of the 20s that global institutions and cooperation could eliminate war, like the the, the, the Locarno Treaty, the League of Nations, this kind of 14-point stuff. I mean, Lovecraft here is kind of scornful of this. Uh, He kind of has mocking words for this talk of brotherhood or sacrifice. He believed disarmament to be a recipe for weakness and defeat in the next war, which he thought was inevitable. And he predicted that the next war would be between England, France, and the United States on one side, and Germany, Japan, and Russia on the other. Um, so he gets almost right there, um, except... I mean, I guess you could look at the time and say, oh, see, look, uh, Germany, Japan, Russia, all kind of moving towards authoritarianism. Although Germany wasn't in 1921. Japan was moving towards militarism already. Anyway, it's, it's... Got it close. I mean, he got, he got Russia wrong there. But I think a lot of people... It got Russia wrong in the early 1920s in the time of the Red Scare. Um, so his final prediction about the war would be the final war that would start the final ending. That's his word. Start the final ending. All right. Now I jump ahead a couple years here. Um, didn't find too much in 1922 that interested me. So we're up to letter 117. This was to Reinhard Kleiner, um, January 11th, 1923. Um so even as he now begins to express increasing apathy towards immigration and commerce, he delighted in New England communities, which were themselves tied to the sea. And this is kind of one of his kind of maritime letters. And there's quite a few of them that he writes throughout his career, letters that talk about the sea. And obviously, that's going to be of interest to me. So he talks about a trip to Salem, um, Mass- Salem, Massachusetts, where he ex- he experiences a quote an aesthetic and historical orgy or delight and he adds that quote i have not dreamt so much of the 17th century still remembered for the contemplation of the studious so he had this kind of love for marblehead and i think marblehead becomes the model for uh what's kingsport i think that's the name of the city that you see in the what's what's the story the festival um which I think had been written around this time. Um, so he saw kind of Marblehead as unchanged from its maritime heydays a century before, unlike Innsmouth, which is radically changed from its maritime uh, heydays. Um, so next, uh, HPL to James F. Morton. So Morton's a, an, an, uh, an interesting guy. He was an anarchist. Um, and a political activist. He's a Baha'i um thinker. And he was a friend of Lovecraft. I mean, this is probably someone who's more of a of a of a contradiction to Lovecraft. A lot of his other correspondents you know kind of fed off different aspects of Lovecraft's thinking. But I can imagine Morton I, I really want to see his letters actually, the letters he wrote to, to Lovecraft. Um but, you know, looking at Wikipedia here. Uh, He wrote on a wide range of topics Racism against redheads Anti-Semitism in Russia uh, Religion and politics Thomas Paine Lovecraft never mentioned Thomas Paine as far as I know Tyranny in the postal system Women's works, rights and social reform Funerals, baseball games Mob spirit, radicalism Contraception Um, So he He was a classmate of Du Bois He corresponded with W.E.B. Du Bois Uh, He campaigned under the People's Party. So his dates were uh, 1870 to 1941. Uh, he wrote about the single tax system, which was the the, George, you know, the, the Henry George ideas. So um, interesting. Uh, and I, I would love to see what he wrote back to Lovecraft. If anyone knows where to get those letters, let me know. So he writes about fascism to, to Morton. Lovecraft writes about fascism to Morton in this letter. And so I'm going to quote this to you a big chunk of it. Um, a net to the fascist problem. Uh, surely we, we approach it from radically different directions. Gal Pinnis and I have been discussing democracy a lot lately, and we agree that's a false idol, a mere catchword and illusion of inferior classes, visionaries, and dying civilizations. Life has no ultimate value, and our proximate values can be little more than what we see, bef- that see or possess. We advocate the preservation of conditions favorable to the growth of beautiful things, imposing palaces, beautiful cities, elegant literature, repulsive art and music, and physically select human types, such as only luxury and pure racial strain can produce. We thus oppose democracy, if only because it was a retard the development of a handsome Nordic breed. End quote. Now, I have to say that this is a really, really bad argument for racism. <laughs> it's basically aesthetic racism, like racial oppression for aesthetic gains. I mean, it's really, really stupid and bad. Um so shame on you, Lovecraft. You're better than this, even at your worst this is this is stupid. Maybe it's the only way you can talk back to Morton. I don't know. I haven't read Morton though, so I just kind of know a little bit about him from from studying Lovecraft. So he continues to blabble on about democracy in this letter, seeing as something that prevents the promotion of art and the advancement of civilization. And he ends the letter with an embrace of a much broader nebulous philosophy that we actually do now know as fascism. Um, So he kind of picks and chooses. I I I think at the end of the day, he's really flirting with fascist ideas in these in these 1920 letters, not just in that he's racist, but even at a more fundamental level. Um, You know, his kind of his, his embrace of war, his his kind of belief in this lack of progress, this impossibility of progress or equality. He writes, quote, we need fewer harps and veals, more drums and brasses. The answer to jazz is the wild dance of the warlike conqueror. Do not complain of the use high powered motor car unless you can give him a horse and armor and send him to conquer the domains of the neighboring kings. And quote, again, this is a grown man writing just juvenile crap. Sorry, I, I've been reading too many Lovecraft letters. Uh, so next we got uh, against James Morton again, February 24th, 1923. That's just two weeks later. So I guess it's a response. Quote, I guess old New England can get, this is quoting him directly. I guess old New England give the rest of American points on historic beauty. But old England, honestly, if I once saw its venerable oaks and abbeys, manor houses and rows, gardens, lanes and hedges, meadows and medieval villages, I could never return to America. When I see old England at last... It must be as a son returning to his father's and I must be in a position to settle there forever in archaic dignity. So his Anglophilia is back. Whatever. We've already talked about it. Um, 19, 129. Uh, this is to Frank Belkap no long. Um, 13 May 1923. More of this. It's going to be more. More race and more Anglophilia. I'm just going to quote the phrase I wrote down. Nothing must disturb my undiluted English re. God save the king. I'm naturally a Nordic, a chalk white bulky Teuton of the Scandinavian or North German forest, a Viking, a berserker killer, a predator roving in the blood of Hengist and Horsa, a conqueror of Celts and Mongrels and founders of empires. End quote, end quote. Shut up, Lovecraft. You're being an idiot. All right. Next, again to Frank Belkamp Long, uh, June of nineteen twenty-three. More praising New England architecture. This may be more interesting because he actually has something concrete to say about uh, New England and English traditions. "Quote: I proceeded by tramcar to eternally magical Marblehead. This time the Lee Mansion was open, and I came at night, fainting from a sheer Britannic magnificence." Since I have dreamt of nothing but Marblehead, old streets and gables and chimney pots and the endless maze of fan-lit and colonial doorways. This I'm fine with. If you're going to you know, drool over England, at least do it from a foundation and something meaningful. Architecture or something, not just weird racial politics. Um, all right, two more left to talk about. How are we doing for time? Not too bad. Um, so I got through these pretty quick. I can't say that'll be the case for the future letters because I'll have the actual letters in front of me. Uh, so this is to Moe, uh, November 24, 1923. So Lovecraft often saw a North Atlantic Anglo-American community visible through an England architecture. So again, he's going to talk kind of about architecture here. Some of his most detailed letters to friends involve descriptions of towns and villages and buildings in his home region. And they're some of his nicest letters. Because it's not like listening to late night talk radio um okay quote i must someday see all these things for i am certain that nothing interests me so vastly as the scenes and landscapes of the 18th century but of paramount immediate interest to me were the illuminating views of colonial providence which i shall employ in an essay or book i'm planning on the subject I don't know if he wrote this. I mean, he does this certainly in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which was written around this time. Now, Lovecraft seems to think that architecture was a window into the regional history and an adhesive tying America with England. But he also saw immigr- like immigrant reflected in the changing landscape, as we talked about in the story The Street. Quote, he wrote, wrote, quote, Federal Hill was sparsely settled in the colonial period, a church and a few houses being shown in Avery's 1777 view. It was later a stronghold of the Irish till after 1870, the Italians drove them down the northern slope and took the crest for themselves, finally occupying the whole, almost to the foot on all sides, the legions of Caesar victorious over the Celts. So a little bit more architecture, not a bad letter. And then the final one I want to talk about today was to Frank Belkinac Belong, January 26, 1924. And this is one of the last letters in the first volume. And we'll pick up with letters sometime later when we start looking at the second volume of the letters. And we got here more on architecture and empire. So this is kind of a period where he's expressing a lot of interest in architecture. Now, during the 20s, when Lovecraft wrote his letters extensively about architecture, quite a lot about architecture in the 20s, uh he would dream most vocally about a reunion with england it's as if the sight of colonial buildings made him pine for his chosen mother country Uh, quote god save the king and yet it is a fact that i have at least enjoyed as much of the ancient atmosphere as america can afford and as i have grown up from birth in an environment not radically different from that of the average english city Take away the exceptional survivals like castles, abbey cathedrals, or a few blocks of Elizabethan or late medieval houses, and you'll find the keynote of an average British town of good size is the architecture of 17th and 18th century and since. Fires in progress have largely eliminated what went before, though one finds such antiques in many of the smaller villages. Hence New England, whose principal towns were all founded betwixt 1620 and 1640, and were of swift and substantial growth hath very largely taken on the semblance of the motherland, so there you have it the lovecraft's letters from his from when he could write till nineteen twenty four mostly nineteen fifteen to nineteen twenty four um, and yeah they they kind of back up a lot of what I've been saying in the podcast by looking at his early stories so um yeah i don't know let me know what you think if you've read these letters i you know are there any really great letters i missed that maybe would be really useful if there's any great letters in this selection if you have access to this and there's a letter i missed that really i i should have talked about or, or thought about you know i would, it would really just be helpful personally to, to know that um so i think what i'm going to do from this point on I, i've kind of sketched out six more episodes before getting back to stories uh picking up in 1921 and just kind of going through the other writings available i think i'm going to do an episode next where i'm going to talk a little bit more about world war one maybe kind of rehash a lot of things but it'll be a a devoted to world war one then i want to have one devoted to maybe amateur astronomy i want to have one on temperance and then i'm going to look at poems i'm going to do two episodes where i'll look at various poems not all of them maybe but but quite a few cycle pump is one that's kind of almost a short story in a poem form. Um, yeah, I'm going to pick this. Maybe maybe I'll have to be able to talk a little bit about all the poems because I do have a, a bunch of them. Um, maybe not everyone. I, can, I can't say I have every single poem, but quite a few. Um, there is a collection online of like his collected poetry, but then I found there's some poems that weren't in that. So I don't know how many others are missing. So I, I don't know if I have them all, but hopefully I have most of them. I think there's a list on, on a website somewhere. So I'll, I'll try to double check that. And then I'll do one as kind of kind of the capstone of this, f- this second unit to talk more about his racial views. And some front, as seen as an amateur journalism. So six more episodes dealing with different aspects of his thought in the World War I era. And then I'm going to get back into stories... Which will be another long series looking at his stories from 1921 to to I think the Call of Cthulhu. I think that's um, that would that's as far as I'm going to go in his in his writing. But a lot of a lot of great stories, a lot of important stories were written in that that period, including the period I was just talking about, like the period from 21 to 24. A very very productive time for Lovecraft. So anyway, anyways, let me know what you think about any of this stuff. Um, if you have an idea of how I might approach the letters in the future when I have them in front of me and I might get kind of too much into the rabbit hole, um, let me know. If you like this format or would you like more detail in the letters, maybe, maybe let me you know what you think about that. So um, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time um, with some of his, uh, a more systematic presentation of his ideas about World War I and the anglo-american kind of solidarity he dreamed of so um that's it for now i'll see you next time